what we need more than anything is I believe good people create good technology. And what we need more than anything is we need more founders who are good people building responsible artificial intelligence products. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm coming off of writing a gigantic RFP response. So I got up at 4 a.m. I am heavily caffeinated. And my guest today is Susan Sly. Susan, I am so happy to talk to you today, even though I'm a little, you know, punch drunk from doing some business development. So welcome to the show. I would love if you would introduce yourself. You have so many amazing projects going on and just tell everybody about yourself. Well, thanks, David, and condolences on the RFP, but I wish you the best of luck, my friend. I am also heavily caffeinated. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm speaking at the AI and Voice Conference. So I was telling David that as a podcast host myself, my husband was like, what the heck? Like, you're going for two days. You have all this luggage. I'm like, honey, because one bag is just my podcast gear because I'm not going to show up on a podcast and have crappy sound. So I want to acknowledge David, the B2B team, all the listeners. And if you're viewing me, this is horrible hotel lighting, but it is what it is. Anyway, so a little bit about me and my background. I am a serial entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 11 years old and with a business loan from my father, which I did pay back with interest, which he made me pay. It was a great lesson. So I have always had my own business. I'm about to turn 51. So for 40 years... And currently, I am the co-founder and co-CEO of Radius AI. We're the only computer vision company to ever deploy at scale in retail. And less than 2% of all U.S.-based tech companies have at least one female co-founder. And so I'm in that 2%. And that just, you know, what else can I tell you? I've been, um, since we're being transparent, so... I'm not a great hotel sleeper. I woke up three with a bunch of ideas. I managed to go back to bed, woke up, got super caffeinated, did some meditation. And then I had, David, I had the best run in Washington. I saw all the sites this morning. I saw the White House. I saw the mall. I saw the Vietnam Memorial. I'm like, it was the best way to see Washington. And then as soon as we're done, I'm headed over to the conference to do my thing. We should go into the entrepreneurs as runners thing. That happens so much like I'm a, I'm a distance runner also or you know used to be i kind of play one on tv now and it just got off my latest stress fracture so you know that's exciting i get to get back into my cardio i love the idea of meditating i never do it should do it i think a lot about doing it but you know so maybe there's mindfulness and just thinking about you know maybe someday i'll take good care of myself you know <laughs> in that way i love this thing now that you all in particularly in you know ai must be going through which is just like oh yeah everybody else is paying attention now you know and you've been doing it and you're at scale and so that story has been fascinating me lately like what do you know that's already at scale for ai that 
you know, everybody else is sort of waking up to. It's like the zeitgeist is paying attention. Uh, that's a huge question. I have like three questions for you. Like, what kind of running shoes do you wear? But we won't go down there because I'm currently using Saucony's and I've been using them for years. But now I'm like, my husband just got a, like a different kind of pair. So if you have any pro tips. I became a Brooks guy. I was for years a Saucony runner as well. So I, nothing bad to say about them. But as I got uh, fatter and older, need a little more uh, neutral cushioning. So. <laughs> neutral cushioning. Yes, that is a lovely way to say we at a certain age need some different shoes. My pro tip, and I'll give a shout out to a founder, Eric Corum startup, AIM7. And really it's for high achieving entrepreneurs who have a hard time meditating or figuring out the best workout to do and they're hammering. He's crushing it. He just launched it and it's awesome. They've got some seed round funding. So anyway, full disclosure, I'm an advisor to that company, but I'm excited about it because it's for people like us, David. Anyway, so the question about AI is interesting because when we started the company, we registered the company in December of 2017. And, you know, who was talking about computer vision at that time? Now, AI has been around for a while, especially for ML, things like hospital records, radiology scans, all sorts of different things with practical application. You know, I'm going to say Siri and other search and my phone will probably turn on. What Facebook was doing was really interesting back in 08, 09, and 10. So if the listeners were on Facebook and you remember someone saying, is that David with you in the photo? Do you remember the like, and you go, yes, it's David. And then the next photo, and let's say David's wearing a hat, is that David? And you're like, yes, that's David. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, genius. I don't own any meta stock because I'm just like, no, I'm not going to own it. But he had the large... Yeah, the largest army of data annotators, like global data annotators. And we were complicit in that and unwittingly or whatever. So we trained all of his image recognition models. It's just insane. And so AI has been around for a long time. But what we're hearing about now in terms of generative AI, in terms of how, for example, in in AI, where we say, yes, this is a cat or this is David or, or whatever the case is, we're training the models. Generative AI is now able to go into those data sets and make structure out of unstructured data. So we're having this whole AI renaissance, I guess, but to be one of the first companies that ever deployed at scale outside of, say, ML models, it came with a lot of challenges. It came with a lot of learnings. And it's tough when you're popular as well, because it also came with a lot of customer demand and, you know, getting to that place where we actually had to say no to enterprise level customers. So we've learned, you know, we've learned a lot. We continue to learn a lot. And I'm goodness knows, even as a CEO, I don't have an ego around it. I don't know everything. You know, usually I, the best CEOs, I think, are the ones that can say that, you know, best leaders up and down the chain, right? I don't know, but let's go find out together, you know, and at least... We have access to, you know, the sum total of all the world's knowledge on a little glowing piece of glass in our pocket now that we take that for granted, but <laughs> it didn't used to be that way. Can I tell you the Wi-Fi was not working on my flight yesterday and I had uh, a nap and it was such a good nap. I actually woke actually up drooling. Good. 
I was drooling. It was embarrassing, but I didn't care. <laughs> the people next to you didn't know they were with, you know, startup royalty. I, they got your drool on them. Unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't share the drool. You know, I want to do the whole computer vision thing. And it's like, I think my only experience with this so far is I finally got in an airport with one of those Amazon stores where, you know, you just walk in and steal stuff and somehow it charges your credit card for the right thing. And at first I was terrified. I'm like, there's no way this is going to work. You know, I'm going to get charged like 50 bucks for a, a bag of chips. And then I'm just shocked. And you guys are doing this stuff like in scale or at scale in the wild and and using it to better, you know, make the customer's business work better. I don't know, just tell that story a little bit. I think that's just fascinating. The space between having that idea and actually doing that at scale is extraordinary. Oh, thank you. You know, when I was running this morning, I look for cameras everywhere now because they are everywhere. In London, there are, I believe the statistic is 10 cameras for every person. And so there are a lot of conversations, David, happening about the ethical use of AI, the ethical use of computer vision. And yet, in some of my work at MIT, and just before I came on the show, I was being interviewed to take another program at MIT where they don't, they, 20% of the candidates, they just turn away. You don't get to get in. And in some of my work at MIT, one of the things we've been discussing is what we're willing to trade our data for. And I want to start the conversation here because I am an advocate for data integrity. So I'm running past the White House and they have these, the, you know, the, you can run past it. You can't drive a vehicle past it. And they have all these beautiful kind of, you know, street lamps. And I'm looking around and like, where are the cameras? And I found them. They have dome cameras that are part of the design, David, of those lamps. And I'm like, aha. And if you think the Secret Service, I don't know this for a fact, so this is not a conspiracy podcast. You can listen to something else for that. If you think they aren't using facial recognition when you're running past the White House, they probably are. They're using it for TSA. They're using it in all the airports. And so what companies like Amazon did or Standard Cognition did, I'm friends with the founder of that company, is they said, hey, what are we willing to trade privacy for? Are we willing to trade privacy for convenience for I can just walk into a store and grab something? And now at airports, there's with clear, right? As an example, I'm willing to trade. I don't want to wait in the long TSA line because I want the convenience of showing up to the airport very close to my flight and just walking, you know, through and showing my boarding pass. So at Radius, what we said is let's have a different hypothesis. Let's not use personally identifiable information. So we're not going to use the PII. But we are going to create a convenient experience for both the customers and the retailers. And that is what we set out to do. Our CTO, he came from Amino. So he worked on the largest privately held healthcare database in the world. So data privacy at the forefront. We're processing at the edge where the data is being created. We're only sending metadata to the cloud. We don't know you're you. We create a unique identifier for you when you come into the store. We follow your journey, what you're looking at, what you're doing, but we don't know it's you. And here's the thing. The retailer doesn't need to know it's you. 
And so what we are going to see with these types of applications is, and we're already seeing it with AI, where you have artists demanding that AI to create art is being banned. We're going to see more consumers standing up and saying, you know what? Yes, I want my convenience, but I'm not willing to trade my data and the right to removal like we're seeing with GDPR. So it's very complex. And that's, you know, I know that was a very long answer, but you're still awake. That's a testament to the caffeine. Right. Absolutely. My business partner noticed my habits and bought Celsius stock, and she's happy to say it's up 28%. So I am personally responsible for the enrichment of that portfolio. Yeah. And I think that's a really pertinent thing. You brought up the meta example on Facebook at the beginning. You know, did any of us ever opt in for that sort of kind of maybe clip through, you know, some terms of service? You know, there's that default assumption that isn't built in. And of course, if you want to go like, you know, super down the creepy rabbit hole, you know, Palantir and the whole whatever. There's all kinds of stuff. Enemy of the state, right? And, you know, all the satellites are watching you and, you know, all this. And who knows what's actually there? The social credit score in China. Like, I just yeah. want to stand on a soapbox for that for a minute is that we have the citizens of China who are being gauged through computer vision on where they go. So if they're caught worshiping, you know, if they're Christians, then they don't have access to credit. I mean, there's so many examples of that. And so we really need to be responsible and have these conversations about the ethical use of AI, because in a hundred years or 200 years, our, you know, children's children are going to look back at the decisions we all made And there are people right now in their 30s, 40s, 50s making AI decisions that are going to impact for centuries to come. And so what are those decisions that we're going to make? And I I really believe the direction that AI is going is, and this is where we're going to have other enabling technologies, is that it's, yes, I'm opting in to your point, or no, I'm not opting in, or I want to be removed. And that comes with even greater questions um, in terms of that. But I think we're going to start to see, we're already rapidly advancing. We're going to start to see some pretty interesting things. You know what I'm interested in from your journey? It just occurred to me a lot of CEOs probably aspire to get to where they can do evangelism. They can have a soapbox. They can be a mentor. They can do all these things that you don't associate with. I want to run this company today. And so the question would be then, what was your management, you know, kind of infrastructure? Because you must have built an extraordinary team to be able to go and do the bigger order things that you're doing and have a successful, you know, company underneath that. That's really compelling to me because I hear all the time that CEOs want to do that, but they're bogged down actually running their company, which of course is important, you know, as well. You seem to have Threaded that needle. How'd you do that? That's a great question. You know, and and I think the goal of every CEO should be to be obsolete. And I heard years ago that every day you want to fire yourself at night and hire your rehire yourself in the morning. So it I didn't understand this principle until I put it into practice. My goal has always been to hire up. And I have a friend, she's had several successful startups. And she said, Susan, I look to hire people who are like 80% as good as I am because really great entrepreneurs, they're excellent at marketing. They understand the PNL. They can do fundraising. They can do product roadmap. They can do so much um, because they're highly ADD. Let's just be very honest, right? And so the 
ability to put aside one's ego and say, I'm going to hire someone who has exceptional skills in this area. So they're exceptionally talented as your chief legal officer. They're exceptionally talented as your vice president of sales. They're exceptionally talented that you make yourself obsolete and the company has to be able to exist without you. And most entrepreneurs have, as you're very aware, a five to seven year attention span. Seven years is very rare. It's about five years and they're on to something different. And if you don't make obsolescence your top goal, you are going to be working in your company, not on your company. And that's never good for your investors. And it's never good for your team. It's never good for your customers. So for me, I am always talent seeking. I want to find people who are better than I am. And once all those players are in place, then you know that the company's in good shape and you know whatever is next for you is next, right? What's the circuit like? I think people love to talk about, I want to speak. I want to be in front of a crowd. I want to be an influence maker You know, in that way. Does it live up to that expectation for you? So I have been speaking on stages for over two decades. So I've done large speaking events, keynoting in front of 20,000 people, plus another 40,000 live streaming. I've shared the stage with Tony Robbins, with Pitbull, with Jack Canfield, Robert Kiyosaki, Mark Victor Hansen, Mel Robbins, you name it. So I was in that world. And so speaking is not, one should never speak to get the rush of speaking. I've seen a lot of marriages ruined. I've seen people get so drunk on that need for the audience validation. Even Taylor Swift was talking about, I was watching her documentary the other day, and she was talking about she had this need to be externally validated. And so for me, I'm naturally an introvert, but I can be a selective extrovert. So for me, those stages back in those days were never about what was in it for me. It was about how to have the audience have a shift. And so now speaking on AI or speaking on computer vision or speaking on edge compute, you know, who knows? (laughs) Just all of these things, right? My objective is to deliver a clear message that is usable for that audience. And I think On the other side of some of my entrepreneurial goals, I'll go back into that big speaking world. I'll put out my new book, um, which I won't disclose what the title of it is, but the I'll go back into that large speaking world because I think I have a a big message to share and hopefully it'll inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs. That's fantastic. Absolutely. So I have to go back. You know, it it all starts at the beginning, right? The 11-year-old business. What did you sell? Tell me about that. I also had a business right around that age. But, well, I learned that if you had a cost of goods sold of zero, you could make a lot of money. And so I would steal stuff and I would sell it at school. And then I learned that that's fencing and it's illegal. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. But, you know, (laughs) kids at home don't copy me, but you know, I did learn about how to run a little enterprise there. So I bet yours was a little bit more above board if your dad actually gave you a loan. So, yeah. So I am um, what, you know, if you and I 
had nothing. Like one of my friends is Glenn Stearns, undercover billionaire. You know, he had the hundred bucks, the pickup truck, and every listener needs to go on, get and watch the first undercover billionaire. You know, the cell phone, no contacts, just his skills. So if David and I had nothing and we had 90 days to create a million dollar business, we could do it because we have all the skills, but the skills have to come from somewhere. And the number one reason any startup fails is cash flow, right? So I'm very fortunate early on that, you know, I had a problem I wanted to solve, which was I had a cash flow problem and I wanted to have money to buy Christmas presents, David. And my dad was like, I don't believe in allowance. I believe in work. He said, why don't you start a business? And I'm like, oh, okay. What am I going to start a business with? And he said, well, what do you like to do? And I, 11, I like to do crafts. And he said, okay, so figure out what it is. And so I had gone to craft camp and we had learned how to make these Christmas ornaments that look like little dolls. And so I wanted to do that business. And my dad said, okay, I'll give you a business loan, figure out what your cogs is. So I go and I go to the hobby store and I'm like writing it all down with tax and I figure out like my wholesale, like, you know, and then what I'm going to sell it for retail, what the market will bear. So I get a $40 loan and it's 1983. And so I buy my raw materials and I go and sell them. And I had people who said no to me. We had a family restaurant. So I would like go around to tables and then some people said yes. And I made $80 and I paid him back. He charged me 10% interest, $44. And I reinvested my $36. And so then I went back and eventually I did another round and so forth. And I netted $120 and I was hooked. What was, I'm trying to think that the prime rate in 1983 was kind of high. Did that hit you pretty good for the interest rate there? I (laughs) I don't know, but I feel like we're having deja vu in America again. So I don't know, maybe, you know, it was, I don't. I mean, if you can learn how to operate it, you know, 11, 12% for a a short-term loan, like, you know, that's a whole different world than free money, you know, just five years ago to four years ago, even so. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast we'll talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I relate. I have children in their teens who want to make money and I'm just, you know, I'm not just going to buy you stuff. Like, you know, let's talk about what skills you have. My one son is really interested in making YouTube videos. Now you can be a video editor and you can charge people a bunch of money for that. It's going to be a lot better than bag and groceries, but you know, Hey, you don't want to listen to that yet. So we're still working on it. So then your path, There's a space then between 11 years old and sort of 2017, right? So what were the pivotal steps that, you know, entrepreneurs, I know that I've blown up several barriers and spent lots of money and, you know, lost my money and, you know, finally sort of was able to accumulate all that experience into something worthwhile doing, but it was not by any means an overnight success. Yeah, no, for sure. And I had a lot of side hustles, whether it was babysitting or I put myself through college doing fitness training. And, you know, I just wanted to share this story just, you know, for whatever reason, maybe one of the listeners. So one of the things I did to put myself through college was I taught fitness classes. I was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I was asked to go into an area of the city where 
There were a lot of drugs where you didn't park your car because your hubcaps would be stolen. It was very dangerous. This is the era before cell phones. And so I had, you probably remember, like we used to call them ghetto blasters, but beatboxes. Like I had this big beatbox and I got asked to go do this. Cassette tapes, my, no doubt, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I got asked to go teach hip hop in this area. And I was at first I was like, oh my gosh, like I really could use the extra money. And, you know, this is not the best area of town, but I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this. And so I have this little white Honda and a uh, Honda Civic. And I go down there and I get out of the car and like all these kids are looking at me. And, you know, I just said, I'm here to teach dance. And it's your mom or your grandma or your sister or someone who's coming. And I'm just asking, can you please make sure nothing happens to my cards? All I've got. I'm a student. So I go and teach the class and I come back and I, my heart's racing. David, I'm like, well, you know, hopefully nothing's going to happen in my car. And it was still there. I'm like, cool. So the next Tuesday night, I drive down there and it and the kids are all come and surround my car. And I'm like, oh, crap, like what's going on? And I open the door and this little boy goes, miss, I'm going to walk you in. And he said, we have told everyone that they're not allowed to touch your car because my mom last Tuesday night did not do drugs and I want you to keep teaching. And the reason I'm sharing that story is you asked about my entrepreneurial journey. That journey of making money through my side hustles gave me so much more than a PhD. It allowed me to serve at a different level to learn a lot of lessons. One of the things I learned from that experience was never to discount anyone, never to tell myself a story about whether a customer had the money or didn't have the money or, you know, the value I was bringing. I thought if you show up with value and you show up with the right intent, you will get paid. And so I went on to start a health club. I, sorry, I acquired a health club. I had a personal training business. Then I had a coaching business. Then I went and I started to build a massive sales channel and I generated, I built a sales team that generated over $2 billion in sales. I still make money from that venture. I started a digital marketing agency. We became the number one partner in the world for that particular CRM company. So I've had a lot of different businesses. I still own multiple businesses. I invest in startups, as I said. And so that, you know, there have been a lot of lessons along the way about service and contribution, and I'm still learning. I'm very highly aware of what I don't know. Um, and it was in 2017, I had been to Africa several times. At this particular time, I got very sick and my organs, an amoeba was shutting down my organs. I was misdiagnosed by three doctors. And when I was finally diagnosed, it took two years of antibiotics. And so 2018, I'm coming out of it. And I had this idea for a piece of tech that I wanted to create. And I walk out of my friend's office and I end up meeting this guy who's starting this AI company. And they needed someone with my skills raising money. I'm very good at that. And um, sales. And I'm very good at that. Those are my zones of genius. And so I offered to work for free and ended up becoming a uh, partner. And then I started as chief marketing officer, then president, and then co-CEO, and here I am today. That's a lot. Yeah, I can see the threads there, though, that, you know, particularly as a sales professional, I stumbled into that 
you know, just, well, turns out when you hire a bunch of people and you want to do a thing, somebody needs to go sell something. And that was my job since I was the founder and nobody else wanted to do it. And I had to pay all these people. And I turned out that I was good at that. So I, you know, sort of kept zoning in on that and surround myself with people that could do, you know, everything else, which generally includes actually everything else. Like I close a lot of big deals and I make people money, but that's all I know how to do. The gift of gab and making deals. And, you know, and I think there's a, you probably experienced this, just the humility of sort of going, my zone of genius is not. In fact, I, you know, I T-shaped as it were, right. You know, like I can kind of talk about a lot of things from being a podcast host and, you know, reading a lot of articles, but at the end of the day, I can't execute those things without, you know, building a team that can take the vast majority of the work away and I can do my special sauce, you know, sort of on the top or the side or wherever you want to put it. Yeah, I was just asked in this MIT interview about what I think the top three skills required are to be an excellent C-suite executive. And one of them is openness. And then the second one is this uh, to have a student mind, right? And this curiosity, which is this, you know, much like when the children are little, like to have that curiosity and that being willing to explore, I think where people get into trouble, and I'm sure you've seen this too, David, is rigidity, right? I think a lot of the problems we have in the world right now is just rigidity of thought. And to your point, I can recite the NVIDIA GPU catalog as it relates to Edge, and I can tell you which GPUs are probably best for performance for certain applications, but I can't necessarily tell you all the power requirements for them, right? I think a great CEO is like a general contractor who knows how to hire excellent subs. But if the moment you try and be a CEO and the plumber and the electrician and everything else, it's not going to serve you. And it's like I said, you have to focus on obsolescence. If you are the most important person in your company and your company can't function without you, you're not an entrepreneur, you're an employee. You know, I'm thinking about as you build that team takes a massive amount of trust and delegation and all those things, you probably haven't gotten all of those right. You know, as you have hired people, you know, sometimes you're wrong. I learned early in my career that I was susceptible to being sold the best of someone. And that it turns out when I delegated to them, things, you know, sort of didn't happen. So there's this service mindset juxtaposed with accountability. How has that worked for you to be able to have the hard conversations? I was just reading, you know, the Tim Ferriss, right? You know, life success is measured by the number of hard conversations you have had. And you've probably had stories like that. What has that been like to maintain service first and foremost in your mind and also have that accountability to people maybe who, who didn't live up to what they said they could do? Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. And for me personally, if someone is underperforming, the first thing I do is look at myself in the mirror and say, did I give clear directions? And if I did, then the second thing is, did this person have initiative? Did they go and want to learn, right? Because again, going back to that hiring standard, So I haven't written a line of code since 92. And I was in university, I was working on early algorithms to quantify crime scenes. So when I came into this role with Radius, I said, there are going to be a lot of people looking at me 
not because I'm a CEO of an AI company, but to be very candid, because I'm a mixed race woman who's almost 50, who isn't an engineer and is a CEO of an AI company, right? So I enrolled in MIT and I spent three years studying part-time at MIT because I wanted to really learn and I wanted to show up in meetings and in boardrooms where I was often the only non-technical executive and to know my stuff and to understand edge to cloud and to understand IoT and not be, you know, guessing and to like, it's like learning a different language. And so if I have someone and I've explained something clearly and I'm not seeing the initiative to go out and learn, like you said, we can learn everything from our phones and they're not doing that. Then the third step is the following philosophy. The people who take you to one level are not the people who take you to the next. So when your company is a baby and it has like south of a $20 million valuation, you have different people. But when you go from 20 to 40, are the right people on the bus, as Jim Collins says, and good to great. When you go from 40 to 80, 80 to 120, and you want to be hiring at that next level. And so when I've had to have those hard conversations, it's always because the person isn't showing initiative and they're not growing with the organization. And as leaders, we're either growing together or we're growing apart. And if your senior leadership team isn't growing together, then that's something where that's time for some different types of hard conversations. Yeah, absolutely. You just talked about zero to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 80 million dollar valuation there. How did you come by that measure of maturity? I tend to think of, and I start with a lot of zero to, you know, small. So I think of almost like orders of magnitude, you know, not even like a doubling, but once you get to a certain size, you can't add another zero, you know, sort of easily, but which and how of those scales sort of appeal to, I know I'm reaching the next generation or next step because I hit that. Like, where did that come from? Sure. That's a great question. And valuation is like, we could do a whole show on where that comes from. And I want to step back for the listeners because I know, I mean, your show travels everywhere and you have people who are thinking of starting their next venture and they're like, how do I come up with a valuation? So I'm going to step back a little bit if that's okay and just do a, a foundational part of this answer. So when we're looking at valuation, I've seen three things done. One is the moonshot where someone's coming out and it's like, we have this valuation. And I, I did a talk on this in Miami last year. It was real and perceived valuation. So when we were looking at 2020, 2021, there were a lot of perceived valuations that were very high much like the dot-com bubble. So it's like anything.com, David and Susan.com. And suddenly we were like a $100 million company. We didn't even have a product to sell, right? So we saw a lot of very inflated valuations. And that's the problem we're seeing right now this year in terms of VC funding is because the VCs actually invested in companies with conflated valuations that didn't have the EBITDA to support it. They didn't have the patents to support it as a tech company. And so there was no real valuation behind the perceived valuation. And so as a result, they're being very hawkish right now, and they're not deploying capital. And so companies that actually have real valuations are struggling and looking for creative ways to raise money. We're seeing that. 
So the second type of valuation is a valuation that is definitely more on track. And that is a combination of, you know, do you have patents? Do you have revenue? What is your TAM, SOM, SAM? Like all of the stuff we know. And then there's a third company that undervalues. And so any of the companies that I've advised, one of the things we do when we're coming out of the gate, raising that seed money is, what is your real valuation? And, you know, and what is it? You don't want to go too low. One of the companies I advised in their initial friends and family, I said, you're going too low. Because if you look at your total addressable market, you look at what you're doing, your technology, the team and everything that's there. And they actually doubled the valuation, David, and they got a wave of investors coming in because you can do a valuation that's so low that investors actually aren't interested in it. That comes from enterprise sales right there. You know, just like charge more, (laughs) like charge what you're worth. Exactly. And I love that you said that because you know that, right? And so when I'm looking at those valuations, I'm looking at, you know, what can the market bear? What is that actual EBITDA? And do we have the right people that have perhaps come from those companies? So at Radius, we hired our head of global business development. She was formerly the head of AI at Lenovo. Lenovo is a multi-billion dollar per year company. You know, we hired her because, you know, when you hire people that come from a company that does billions of dollars a year, they just think differently. And it makes a lot of sense, right? And one of the, I sat on a couple of boards with a company that went from 19 million their first year and they just kissed a billion annually in the health and wellness sector, right? And so I had a front row seat to watching them go through different C-suite executives, bringing the right people, not having the right people. And so I learned a lot of lessons about, it goes back to that, you know, hiring. So you should never, if let's say your valuation is currently at 20 million, why would you be hiring someone who, you know, had never come from a company that had a valuation of 40, 80, 120 or whatever that number is? You just wouldn't do that because it's a mentality. It's a mindset. The mindset of a hundred million dollar company is so different than a, a $10 million company. Yeah. You know, again, that order of magnitude there, you know, and, you know, what got you here won't get you there and, you know, the whole thing. And I've had a theory for a long time in my own journey and I work with, you know, zero to five million types of companies. I'm talking like small on the order that doesn't even register, you know, for a lot of these types of conversations. And I've always thought that, you know, your sort of maturity as an entrepreneur is is sort of proportional to the number of zeros you get asked for without feeling sick, you know, and, and without feeling like a, like a fraud, you know, and that when you have to write that seven figure number or eight figure number for what you're asking for and not feel like you're lying or not feel like you don't deserve it. And I, I would imagine it's the same thing when you set valuation or when you set aggressive growth targets. It becomes not out of line when you have people around you that have done that and that you can see yourself doing it, you know, as well. Yeah, almost definitely. And it takes a it takes a maturity and it's speed of the leader, speed of the pack, right? So one of the things that I get asked a lot by my staff is how many books do you read in a month? And my answer is three to four, sometimes more. I have a I don't know if it's a bad habit, David, or like a good habit, but anyway. Every time I go through the airport, I buy a new book. Always. I like actual real books, not reading like on the Kindle or the iPad. Like it's just, I like a physical book. I don't want to look at a screen. So I read a lot of books. And 
the thing I would say to everyone is there's a saying that goes something and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's like you can't soar with the eagles if you're plucking on the ground with the chickens, right? So if you're, you know, if you really aspire to grow a big company and and to be the leader you can, what books are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? Are you listening to this show? You know, are you listening to my show? What CEOs are you trying to emulate? You know, I love Jensen Wong at NVIDIA. To your point, I know and I'm friends with several of his senior executives. We do a lot of business with NVIDIA. And I watch Jensen and I've seen him pivot. I've seen him say, you know what, we're going to do this and this. You know, most recently, say, with Omniverse. And now we're just going to focus Omniverse on vehicles, as an example. Or, you know, even with what, you know, some of the projects with that they're doing with LLM and Nemo and stuff like that. And so you really have to say, as a CEO, who is it that I want to emulate? Who's doing it the way that I want to do it? And then 80% of the time that you're doing your spare time and you're listening and you're, you know, whatever it is you're doing reading, you need to be listening and reading up. If you're not listening and reading to, you know, people who are achieving at a level you aspire to, then you're never going to be where you want to be. NVIDIA is a great case of, you know, pretty aggressive, contrarian sort of bet the farm stuff, right? Like, you know, it's like, we're going to lean into this AI thing and own, you know, all the chips. And that was early. That was a long time ago. And, you know, big bets can be made and can be informed, but they don't always pay off. And that contrarian kind of mindset and commitment is interesting because you don't hear about the people that made big bets and they were wrong. Well, there's something I want to say about NVIDIA. And I own some, like, I know we have to do our disclosures. So I own some NVIDIA stock, but I did a post on the day they were going to release their earnings call. And one of the things that people don't see about NVIDIA versus their competitors is NVIDIA is where their customers are and they hire people who are world-class at relationships. So we have a great relationship with NVIDIA at Radius because we're doing computer vision at the edge. So that's GPU enabled. So we have an account rep. We don't resell hardware, but we recommend hardware. So we have account representatives that call on us. We just co-hosted a golf event with HPE and NVIDIA. I've been at the mothership having lunch with Azita Martin from NVIDIA. And, and the list goes on and on. They are at all of the major trade shows from the National Retail Federation to you name it, they are there. They also spend a lot of money in MDF, marketing development funds. And they have a very, very broad ISV, if people don't know what that means, independent software vendor ecosystem. So the reason I mentioned this, David, is because they are also betting heavily on the ISVs that are using their technology and they know them, they know the founders, they know the founders' kids' names. And I know this firsthand, their competitors are not doing that. And that's another reason that NVIDIA is growing. They are a relationship company. Their competitors are technology companies. And if you are a relationship company, you are going to win and people are going to be more forgiving. If you are a technology company, people are less forgiving and you're going to have a harder time. That is why we see time and again that technology companies that are helmed solely by technology people who 
don't have the skills and the emotional quotient like you and I do, that's why they struggle. That's a very interesting insight. You hear things about the relationship economy, you know, and that all of us are really in that game. And I think that's right. And I think, you know, it behooves anybody that's been in the sales seat and understands this to big company, small company, doesn't matter. I think a lot about how do I bring that mindset to frontline operators and delivery personnel and folks that are actually, you know, doing the things for clients. And like, let's understand that the relationships don't stop, you know, at a a particular executive level, that it's the cultural mindset, not just, you know, something that we do because of our particular roles. So then I guess from the top, then how do you build that into company culture? Because I think that you're talking about being a relationship-based company and that's a lot of upskilling for a lot of people, particularly in tech finance, you know, you name it, all those customer journey touch points. Yeah, definitely. You know, someone who really did this well and sadly, you know, died was Tony Shea. I think everyone could benefit if you're in a leadership position of reading his book, Delivering Happiness. You know, Tony was this quintessential founder character that really believed in baking it into the culture. And it wasn't just words, David. It was like, the fact that you could call Zappos and they would order a pizza for you, right? And how he gentrified that area of old Las Vegas and all of the things and how the community projects that the employees did were encouraged. But he was right there, you know, digging gardens and doing all of these things. And I think that there are people who pay it lip service, but don't live it. And the reality is, is that if you are going to be a relationship person, it requires a tremendous amount of humility and vulnerability. And if you're not willing to do that, then you need to figure out who you're going to be. And I'll, I'll give a real example of this. So, you know, every single day I send my kids and my husband a gratitude message. Every day it's different. I also send that to different employees. And I had an employee who sent me a message And that said, I want to thank you. I am sitting with my therapist right now. And I realized that a good part of my life, I have been in victim mode. And you were the first person that helped me see I wasn't a victim. And my therapist wanted me to send you this message while I'm in their office. And so it's not something you just talk about, it's something you live. And if you're feeling crappy, If you're having a wall-kicking moment, you didn't sign the customer deal or there's internal nonsense going on or you're feeling flabby or you didn't get a good night's sleep or whatever it is, there should not be a day that goes by if you're really going to be a relationship person that you don't say thank you to someone even without an agenda. And that is how I live my life. Bottom line, I send note cards. I'll take pictures with people. I'll send note cards to them. Even people that have maybe ticked me off, I will figure out a way. This morning, I wrote 18 items of gratitude about a certain situation. And I know some people may say that sounds airy-fairy. Well, go try and live it and see if your life doesn't change. 
if you're so happy with your life, then don't do what I say. But if you're not feeling fulfilled, start with that. Figure out what to be grateful for and your whole life will change. Your business will change. Everything will change. I love that. Yeah, I don't think that's airy at all. So, you know, it takes a great deal of effort to live those values and not just read the book. And so, you know, thank you to you for doing that and for sharing the message. There are people that need to hear that. And I am sometimes one of them. I try to do a good job there. But, you know, you wake up sometimes, you're like, I don't want to get up. And, you know, I need to find that motivation of, and you talk about parenting, you talk about business, you know, whatever it is, right? You get there and, you know, you show up and take your breaths and, and make the best of you know each one of those days. So I resonate completely. It's something you said at the top of the hour, this can add value to you or anyone listening. So in the summer of the pandemic, you know, we're in the house. I, like many people, decide to renovate my house and I'm there. I was listening to a podcast, actually, Joel Osteen, and he said something that we'll never forget, which is don't ask for something you want for yourself until you're willing to pray it for someone else. And so I started a habit the summer of 2020, and this may help you with your meditation. So every morning for 45 minutes, David, what my meditation is, is not sitting there freaking chanting. It's not like going um on a cushion or all kinds of crap like that. I sit there for 45 minutes and I'll say, God, it can, you know, people can interpret whatever they want. And I pray over different people for 45 minutes every day. I even pray for my competitors that their businesses will prosper. I pray for people who have said crappy things about me. I have a whole list of 10 people right now who are going through cancer. I have a list of families that their kids are going through addiction. And I have like all of these people and there are all these people on my list. And that's my meditation every morning. And that's great because I think it brings a lot of structure to it, you know, and it is hard for people to, you know, what am I supposed to do here with my mind, you know, and directing that mental power, I think is a huge step. So I love the tip. Yeah, ab absolutely right. Well, we're going to run out of time and you have to go speak to people about AI, which is, is super fantastic. You know, I, I like to ask before we go, you know, from the leader of a B2B company perspective, that's our audience. That's who we talk to. What is uniquely on your radar that you kind of want to go, hey, everybody pay attention to this. And it may be, you know, some of the things we, you know, already talked about, but I love to wrap with this one question. Sure. It's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind from a tactical point of view is multimodal AI. So up until recently, AI was put into different buckets. So there's voice, there's NLP, there's vision. And now we are just about to be on the frontier of multimodal AI. And what that is, is that it's AI that is able to, because of generative AI, being able to sift through unstructured data, be able to take all these data points from different types of sensors, whether it's voice, vision, text, and to amalgamate it into a different form of AI that doesn't quite yet exist. And I know for some people that might be scary and it, you know, that's the beginning of what super AI is, right? For some people, it might be exciting, but 
one of the things I said in a lecture I gave for MIT Sloan School of Management is this, fearing something will not make it go away. And what we need more than anything is I believe good people create good technology. And what we need more than anything is we need more founders who are good people building responsible artificial intelligence products. We need more people to be at the forefront of having these discussions of ethical AI. We need more people to put down their, you know, a hundred years from now, we're not going to look back and say, oh, we wish we had been on certain sides of the aisle or whatever. We're going to wish we had been more responsible with artificial intelligence. We need more people who are taking a stand and building the right things. But to answer your question, it's mind-blowing because quantum compute will change the game. This multimodal super AI that is coming. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? And the other question is, how will it change your business? And my answer is radically. Absolutely. I'm advising everybody that I'm talking to, like, just get the at the very least, the general education of what this is, because I think it's easy to look at hype and kind of go, oh, well, that one's not important. It'll pass with the next news cycle or it'll blow up like Web3 or, you know, what have you, right? There are always these things. And I think the fundamental shift that's happening, you know, now with AI has been a long time coming and there's a foundation to it, which is just saying, yeah, you know, if we throw enough compute at this and we will have enough compute, it will be different. And I think that we now have the fundamental technologies to do that. And the singularity is near, right? So <laughs> Susan, this is a blast. You're the kind of person, clearly I could do this with all day and would love to do that because that would be fun. And hopefully we'll do some more episodes. In the meantime, whoever is resonating with you, and I'm sure there are many of them, what are the best channels to seek you out, reach out, and get to know more about you? Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm everywhere. Um, I'm on X at Susan Sly Live. I can't, I, I want to say Twitter so badly. I'm LinkedIn. You're the first person that, that said that. Well done. Well, well, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a big Elon fan. That's a whole other story. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Susan Sly. And then my website is susansly.com. And you can communicate with me there as well. David is going to be on my show. We just have to get that booked, which is Raw and Real Entrepreneurship. And that is for anyone who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur. I interview a lot of founders, B2C founders, B2B 12-year-old founders. They're so adorable. They're so wise. They're like little Yodas. It's amazing. And as a mom, I'm very proud of them. But anyway, that's where you can connect with me. And David, I just want to honor you because, you know, literally... It's no joke filling in an RFP. And if you don't know what that is, it's a big Excel document with a lot of redundancy. It's a headache and it's worth it and you do it. But, you know, here you are pausing from that, doing your show, being a dad, figuring out, you know, your life, your health, trying to get it all in, you know. And so my hat's off to you because you're one of these rare people who really understands that, you know, there's more to life than just business. So you're doing a lot to contribute and thank you for that. Well, you are super kind and I feel really good hearing that feedback. So thank you so much. Susan, it's been a blast. Have an awesome speaking opportunity today in Washington and we look forward to more. Awesome, thank you. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. 
And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.